Hello, I'm Peter Kimball, and this is Top New Filmmakers, where we introduce you to filmmakers you might not have heard of, but definitely should pay attention to. And today we're talking with Emmy Award-winning writer, producer, and comedian Hugh Fink. Hugh was a writer for a little show called Saturday Night Live, where he worked alongside Will Ferrell, Maya Rudolph, Norm MacDonald, Tina Fey, Tracy Morgan, and where during his final season, he received the Emmy Award for Outstanding Writing for a Comedy Program. Hughes worked on a number of other shows, including as the creator, executive producer of the irreverent Comedy Central series, The Showbiz Show with David Spade, and as the co-writer of the NBC Muppets movie, Letters to Santa, A Muppet's Christmas, where he got into an argument with the actor playing Kermit, who refused to do a joke in the script on the grounds that Kermit wouldn't say that. So Hugh, I definitely want to dive into all of your various Muppet-related skirmishes, but, but first, thank you for joining me today. Peter, I am honored to be a guest on your show. Um, well, great. And thank, thank you so much. And we're going to dive into a lot of different aspects of your career and your opinions, your, uh, your takes on media, on entertainment, on comedy, whatever you want to share. But I want to start at the beginning. Where did you grow up? Uh, where are you from? Um, any, any of that information that sort of shaped you? Yes, I'm from Indiana, the Hoosier State. I'm also Jewish which is an unusual thing to be from Indiana, so I call myself a Jewser. I lived <laughs> in Indiana all through high school and then wanted the hell out, so I went to college in New York City. Okay, okay. So and do, you, do you go back to Indiana to Indiana at all? Or, or I once do. Once gone, I you, you've never turned there. around. Yes. I have a probably a love-hate relationship with the state, although I had a very happy childhood. So I enjoy going back to visit family and friends when I can. Oh, that's great. Um, and do you consider, so you're in New York now or, or are you? I'm in Los Angeles now where I live, uh, but I've spent a lot of time in New York. And so is that, um, so you start off in Indiana, you go to New York and that's sort of a farewell to the, the Indiana life. Is there is there a big divide between the New York life and the LA life or those just sort of interchangeable uh, coastal cities? What's, what's, what's your experience been? My experience is that they've gotten closer in how you exist there than they used to be. There no question there used to be a real cultural clash between the two towns. And um, certainly New Yorkers looked down on L.A. and dreaded the notion that they'd ever have to move here. But I think that's changed a lot in the last... 25 years and so what we're jumping ahead in time but what precipitated your move to la what 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 led to that it was real simple it's that the comedy business particularly stand-up comedy was a booming art form when i was getting into it in los angeles and yes i knew i was going to have to struggle and pay my dues but if you're going to struggle and pay your dues it's better to do in la than new york because apartments and the weather and everything else are just a little easier to take. You know, that's that's been my experience. <laughs> I, I lived in L.A. I've never lived in New York. Um, and I'm also from Boston. So I have this sort of Boston versus New York antipathy. And then, you know, I, I, had, I had some anxiety about L.A. And then when I got there, it was like, oh, there are beaches. There's nice weather. This, is, uh, this isn't so bad at all. Yeah, I've seen a lot of angry Bostonians like you, Peter, who've moved out here. 
and they come with a real chip on their shoulder, hating the Lakers, hating Hollywood. But then their their Boston side that that anger sort of subsides into, wow, this is actually not bad. <laughs> there's a there's there's a, there's a lot there's a lot that can be right about L.A. I um and uh, do you. Would you say when you moved there, you had a lot of preconceived notions and had to overcome them, or were you pretty excited about the move? I was pretty excited. I didn't have that many preconceived notions other than the stereotypes. So the one thing that was accurate was that sushi, as a normal thing to eat, absolutely came from L.A. Like, I don't know if you could relate to this, but in the late 70s, the notion of talking about sushi or going for sushi was a complete novelty. There were very few restaurants that served it, and that just seemed like such a ridiculous Hollywood thing. But, you know, within a certain amount of years, sushi became a thing in New York, and now it's obviously a thing at grocery stores all across America. That's right. And I'm sure it's just as good quality at all those grocery stores. Oh, as yeah, a- exactly. Like, you know, all the top chefs, like Nobu and stuff, are simply overpaid because... The sushi that he makes is no better than what you find at Kroger. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure. Um, okay, but so um, so stepping back a little bit in time. So, what got you interested in comedy in the first place? What? How did? What was your maybe maybe sort of? Well, let's start off with because I'm sure there are lots of different ways you could answer that. But let's start off with in your childhood. Did you were you drawn to comedy? Were were there aspects of that already there? Definitely, I was drawn to the notion of comedy of mockery, uh, using it to point out hypocrisy and mediocrity, um, and and there's a lot of that in Indiana. So I think at a really young age, I loved being able to get a get a laugh and hear other people make me laugh, who could sort of intelligently dissect the world around me and how did that then develop over time what what how did your your interest in comedy where did you start uh you know putting that into action i started early like in elementary school my parents reminded me that for years teachers would would say hugh when we give you a writing assignment not everything has to be funny (laughs) <laughs> but apparently it was my natural thing to always turn it into something humorous. And they were very aware of that. And I became known amongst my peers to do impressions of teachers and do sort of, you know, irreverent takes on the school and the administration. So I also had a little fight in me of the underdog versus the powers that be and always wanting to tear down the powers that be. And, you know, you, you were saying just then the, uh, you know, your teachers had to had to say not everything needs to be funny. Is is that something that comes up in your life otherwise? Does does everything need to be funny or is, is you know, as you've gotten older, is that, uh, you know, there are clear dividing lines between what is comedic work and what is uh, serious time? I think, Peter, that for me, the only clear dividing lines are the lines that I set for myself. In other words, no one else is really telling me that. But the more that I've gotten into comedy as a profession and doing it for a living, it's probably made me more serious in a sense that I need to take a break from 
making others laugh or me enjoying comedy and wanting to delve in stuff that's that's less comedic. But that's really my choice. And would you say, like, with, with all the different people that you've worked with, is, is, uh, is it a common thread that funny people are actually pretty serious when it, when it comes, you know, when it comes to regular life or is, are, are there people who just, the jokes never stop is, uh, how, how have, what's been your experience like with that? That's an insightful question. My experience is that it cuts both ways. In other words, the image of the sad clown that comedians are all, you know, underneath sad and depressed. That's not true. However, it's also not true that all comedians are lighthearted and don't have pain and anger. So I think you, you actually encounter both in the field of comedy. And when I say the field of comedy, I mean comedy writers and performers. Um, and, and I definitely want to talk a little bit more about your experiences with, um, you know, just your myriad experiences with, with all those other performers and writers and people you've worked with. But um, starting off, staying still a little bit with your earlier journey, when you when you go from Indiana to New York, is that pursuing comedy? Is that just getting out of Indiana? Is that do you have a clear vision of what you want to do when you leave? Yeah, you know the problem is when I the problem was when I went to college in New York. Unlike now, which you're well aware of, people can actually go to university to say I want to go into comedy. I want to study it. I want to write it. That was not true when I went to college. So the closest thing there was to that was declaring yourself an acting student, which is what I did. But sadly, I was kidding myself because I wasn't really interested in acting. I was interested in getting laughs and being funny. So even though I was admitted to this prestigious drama department at NYU, after several weeks, I realized, wow, this is not for me at all. I do not want to study acting. And, and so then what did you do? Fortunately, by pure coincidence, they were starting a new undergraduate dramatic writing program. Mm. So I felt like, oh, well, even though I don't want to write serious stuff, at least I can write comedy in the program. And they were going to allow you to, it wasn't just writing for theater, but writing for television and film. So that was a good foray into the field through college. Oh, that's great. That's well, I'm so so glad that worked out for you <laughs> and sort of fortuitous timing too. Yes, I mean, thank you. I don't know if it worked out in the sense that had I gone to another university or college that didn't offer it, I'd like to think that I stood of I stood of will find I would have found my way into comedy somehow. But obviously, being able to sort of do a comedy radio show when I was in college and things like that made it a little easier. And and did it feel like, uh, you know, coming out of college then, did it feel like a streamlined step into, uh, you know, pro professional entertainment? Or was that, uh, was that still very sort of herky-jerky, uh, trying to find your way? What was that like? It was still very herky-jerky because the truth is no amount of academic preparation is going to prepare you for stand-up comedy. You know, you are thrown to the wolves. And I don't mean just – it's one thing to perform on your college campus where similar-minded people who know you are laughing and telling you you're funny. 
But I was like going to comedy clubs in New York City, even as an undergraduate and doing short performances. And that really is a risk, right? Because you're young. These people don't know you. They've actually paid to see stand-up comedy. And a lot of the comedians at the clubs at that time were quite good. Mm. You know, people. So that was, um, in that sense, it wasn't really, I was not prepared by my background for that. So how did how did that end up going? What was that what was that process like of of learning that skill, which which you clearly did? So how did that how did that uh, how did that develop? It developed as the cliche goes by going up over and over and over to uh, different audiences in LA. I mean, after I graduated from NYU, I moved here pretty fast, and I would go up into comedy clubs in Los Angeles which you can't do now because there's too, too many comedians. Mm. But back then, you know, it was a exploding art form. So I was able to get stage time and I actually improved a lot quickly and got noticed by some more experienced, accomplished comedians who would then recommend me for small jobs. But I actually was able to start getting paid to do standup. Well, that's fantastic. And that, and I feel like that's something where, and I don't know, I don't know where this happened along the way for you, but there's a, there's one point. I mean, people dream of becoming fabulously wealthy. That would always be nice, I suppose. But um, but then there's also the just making making a real living at what you're doing, uh, which is definitely a goal. But even the getting some money for what you're doing, as opposed to no money, I mean, is saying someone is investing their money because they think you're good enough for it. Uh, that's That seems like a big step. You're right. It is a big step. And looking back on it, um, I think you don't appreciate it maybe as much because you're so determined and focused on succeeding. But the fact when you can cross over to being someone who's paid to do stand-up and then can make a living doing nothing but stand-up, you're separating yourself from a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, something that I, uh, so I lived in LA for a number of years. I, I'm now based in DC, but um, I had a lot of actor friends in LA and I'd never really aspired to be an actor, but, but uh, I'd done some acting and I thought I was pretty good at it. And, and um, you know, and, and in many ways I was like, I think I'm just as good an actor as a lot of my friends who are making a living at it. And what I discovered, though, in talking to them was the ability of acting, the skill of what you do in front of a camera was one t tiny part of what it actually is to have a career as an actor. And that that uh, actually all the all the effort you put into going on the auditions, the facing rejections and doing it over and over again, that that is really what you're that's the skill that you really need to be successful as an actor. Um, and I. I would imagine there's some of that as well with stand-up comedy. It's not just being funny. It's also all the work that and the the putting yourself up there, putting yourself out on a limb for it. That's right. I think you've pointed out one of the few things that is similar to the crafts, which is that just because you can be a good actor or comedian amongst friendly territory, mm. meaning your school or your friends or your city where people know you, it simply has nothing to do with having that skill and talent to do for strangers. And 
I see that all the time where people who get too comfortable thinking that they're talented based on the feedback they're getting from others who know them. But the real test is obviously to go out and do it in front of people who've never heard of you. Mm -hmm. And if you can, as an actor, I suppose, if you can emotionally affect them or as a comedian, if you can make complete strangers laugh, well, then you've separated yourself again from all the people who can't do that, but want to do that. Yeah. That's, With that said, I mean, that's... Peter, even though I've never seen you act, I guarantee you that you are a better actor than half the people out here who are making a living <laughs> as actors. But I say that because, you know, acting is so crazily subjective in terms of what's good and what's not and why some people work more than others. But obviously a lot of it is, do you have the patience and wherewithal to simply stay at it and face mm -hmm. rejection after rejection after rejection until you carve out a career? And a lot of talented people don't have that tolerance. In you know, and I think that's I think that's very true. Um, and when it comes to stand-up comedy, there's an element. On the one hand, there's an element of you're facing. Um, there's always the risk of rejection, but there's also uh, a super immediate uh, positive response that's possible. That's that's different from you know writing where something gets put up you know a long time later or or acting and something gets you know edited together and released a year later. But when you're doing stand up, theoretically, if you're doing well, you're getting a response right away. That's um, is exactly, that... that's very true. And that's what makes it addictive, right? Because you're getting that, that high or that buzz from the laughter, which is what comedians crave and want. Um, but it also the fun of knowing that you're taking a risk. Every audience literally is different. You're never going to get the exact same response on jokes you've been doing for years. But generally, if it's material that's tried and true, it will work most of the time. But not all the time, but most of the time. And do you feel like there are jokes that you've told where, you know, the audience is wrong? <laughs> where, where you think that's an amazing joke and you should know, but somehow people people just aren't getting it or is by definition the audience uh you know or the audience in aggregate is is eventually right you know for my act peter what i would say is it's not that they're not getting jokes because they don't understand comp comprehend them it's not that it's that they're not laughing because they think it's too mean or too dark that and so that makes me mad because I don't want audiences to reject my material based on their boundaries of what they think is tolerant is okay to say. So I've mm. just known to push push the envelope a bit. So I'd say the times that I haven't gone over well or jokes of mine haven't gone over well, it's usually that that an audience is, if not offended, they're bothered or upset. By something I've said. I see. Um, and, and, and so building off of that, what, what kinds of things in general do you, do you like to uh, explore in your comedy? Or, or how would you characterize your comedy for, for people who haven't heard it? I'd say that um, I like to point out human beings' 
foibles and flaws. But specifically, I like doing stuff that's making fun of people's ignorance, making fun of people's bigotry, making fun of people's arrogance. And most of the time it works for me. <laughs> but obviously it doesn't 100% work. And believe me, there's jokes that I've done successfully on TV, but with the wrong audience at a comedy club, they don't go over well or they make people a little uh, upset or, or whatever. And that's a risk I take. That's interesting. And um, do you, uh, do you feel like that's always a similar kind of joke or does it sometimes surprise you what people have a bad reaction to? If I'm honest with myself, I'm probably not surprised. I'd mm -hmm. say I'm disappointed because uh -huh. I always, you know, want an audience to be super open-minded and informed and take the attitude I do that if something's clever, even if it's disturbing, that you can still laugh at it. But obviously I'm high-minded that way. And certainly like when I performed in Vegas a lot, that was very hit or miss certain jokes because Vegas crowds are, are known to be pretty middle of the road you know, they don't, they're not there to think. They're ha there mm -hmm. to have a good time. So if you say something that's provocative in Vegas, there's a good chance it's not going to go over as well as at some hip comedy club in Boston. Sure, sure. Um, and that's, uh, you know, that's something, too, where I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a father now and I have a, I have a couple kids. And it is something where, on my own time, I love super, super edgy stuff. That's that's my that's my flavor. And then sometimes, though, if I'm out with my kids, like I do, snap into that mode of uh, "Whoa, this is," uh, you know, I, I'm the, I'm now. Even though a part of me is so drawn to really edgy stuff, yeah. If I'm in dad mode, then it's uh, then it's a different story. I share that with you. I don't know what the age of your kids are, but for example, I have a daughter who's now she and her friends have seen every episode of Euphoria oh. and they love it. And like that disturbs me because <laughs> I've seen some of Euphoria and I think it's a really well done show. And it's not that I'm interested in censoring my daughter, but the notion that kids that age can just watch a show like Euphoria and enjoy it and discuss it. And like, it wouldn't be my first choice as a dad, believe me, <laughs> if I have them watch. But I recognize in a healthy way that, well, it's the same thing if, you know, there was a movie or or a TV show or something that my parents were were disturbed to know that I was watching, but they would still let me do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Well, getting getting back a little bit to um, to some of your career, the broader strokes of your career. So as you've you work, you're working in comedy, um, and then do you transition into writing, or is writing just, is, is that just an organic, like you are writing as you're doing stand-up, and then that takes a different form? How do you, how do you go, though, from uh, being a stand-up into, into writing? A few ways. One is that comedians who knew my stand-up, I'd like to think would agree that they said it was a well-written act meaning they could tell that I had a talent in not just coming up with a funny comic premise, but 
the words I chose and the way that I expressed myself was kind of writerly. So that gave me a leg up on comedians whose material is not well written. But I definitely put it out there that I was interested in not just performing anymore, but also writing. And so just by sort of having that thought and, and letting my peers know that it was something I was interested in definitely helped land me some writing gigs early on. Okay. And then what was the road like to Saturday Night Live? Pretty simple in this sense that David Spade, you know, who's a great comedian and his career was, was rapidly expanding. We became friends as comedians and he liked my stand-up a lot, and I liked his stand-up a lot. So when he got hired on the show as a writer-performer, we remained friends, and he would reach out to me for help, which is what a smart comedian does. So I would sometimes give him ideas. I would give him some jokes. And so um, he was instrumental in introducing Lorne Michaels to me which led to me eventually getting hired on the show. Hmm. Now, the uh, I, you know, I'm not sure of. I I guess I would assume that uh, you viewed Saturday Night Live as a as a big uh, something you would like to do as a as a goal or something that was interesting to you. in In those times when David Spade was on the show and you were not yet, um, did, were you? Were you hoping? Were you angling? Was it uh, was it just you were doing your thing and this fell in your lap? What, what was that like? No, I definitely had it as a career goal and passionate goal. And as often happens in show business, there was a year when I was really determined to get hired and I didn't get hired. And just that rejection made me feel like, well, I'm never going to get hired. Mm. And I kind of set the dream aside and said, I have to have new goals. And then the next year I got hired. Huh. So there you go. It shows how you have to be patient. It's not all on your timetable, right? If you're good at what you do and, and you put in the work, the opportunity may come along, but it may not come along when you want it to. Yeah. Do you remember the what those new goals were? That did... No, that's a good question. I think that I was struggling to know what they were. Mm -hmm. Because there weren't, like, I never wanted to be an actor, so it wasn't that. But I think it was more, okay, I'm going to become a great stand-up comic and just focus on my stand-up, and that will lead to good things, even though I'm not sure what they are. Right, right. It is a tricky thing to have a goal that is ultimately in someone else's hands. It's, I mean, it's you That's can right. have a goal to be the best writer possible, the best performer possible. But then, uh, you know, if Lorne Michaels has to, has to say yay or nay, then uh, there's only so much of that can, that can be in your hands. You're right, and especially in a field that's so subjective. Because, look, I compare it to sports. Like, if you're a baseball player, right, and you get scouted by all these teams and you're the fastest guy or the best hitter, the, the best pitcher, well – that's an objective statistic. Those teams are, even if they don't all draft you, you're going to get noticed and they're going to go, that guy is in the top 1% of baseball pitchers in America. 
But in comedy, there's no objectivity. So you could work your ass off for years, getting big laughs, doing well. It doesn't mean that the people in power are going to look at you and go, oh, no, that person's great. They may still say, yeah, I don't like him. I'm not, not going to use him. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a, it's, a, it's a fickle it business. Is. And of course, the business has changed now, Peter, because now a sign of validation is how many followers do you have or mm. how many hits do you have on YouTube? Which, you know, yes, someone who has 10 million hits on a video, that certainly makes them seemingly more uh, of success than someone who has zero hits. However, it still doesn't guarantee they're going to get a TV show, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, it's just, it's a feather in their cap, but it still doesn't guarantee anything. Right. It, al it almost has the appearance of a more objective measure, even though it's maybe a, an empty measure. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Whereas I always say, if you score the most points in the NCAA Division One in basketball, no one can, like, no one can say you're not a good scorer. Mm -hmm. They may come up with other reasons of why you're not going to be a star, but everyone who's an expert will say that person's an amazing shooter. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, so when you first started at Saturday Night Live, um, you know, this is something I haven't really heard about from, from other people, but you know, that first day, is there, it was there a, uh, is it a corporate HR uh, orientation thing? Is it you just show up and are shown where to sit down? Uh, what what was that first? What was that first like at, at the beginning? It's it's the latter for sure. Meaning, not corporate, very loose. Uh, they're not big on friendly introductions, but the first assignment creatively was to write commercial parodies. Mm. That was the first thing because. This has changed a bit because now with di di digital technology, they can shoot a fake ad every week. But, you know, before things were digital, they literally were shooting them like movies. So they had to plan and budget months ahead to shoot a commercial parody. Oh. So that was the first thing you did uh, going into the fall was write commercial parodies. And then they would decide which ones they were going to shoot because it would take months. There's certainly weeks. So so the commercial parodies for a season would have all been front-loaded at the beginning of the season? A lot of them would have, Peter. I'd say not all, but let's say for the first half season, which is September to Christmas time, all of them would have been written by like early September, mid-September and greenlit, and then shot over those weeks. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um. So when you're when when you are starting out, is there a sense of like, this is a new class of people who is starting, uh, like at a like at a school, or is it just you are really just on your own, you know, w with a desk and a legal pad? How, right. How so, that... I have a feeling for most writers and cast joining the show, it's what you said about you're just thrown in the mix. You've got your desk. You're probably sharing an office. Like, go do your thing. The difference is. I was hired when they had cleaned house. So mm. there was this sense of you guys are the new Saturday night live. We just got rid of all the writers. We just got rid of all the cast. You're the new people who are either going to save the show or 
bury it in the ground. <laughs> so there definitely was that sense when I joined of, wow, I'm part of this new, new class. But I think a lot of times people don't experience that feeling. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Um, and so while you were there, are there particular sketches that you were uh, proud of or, or that, you, that you worked on that you'd highlight? Oh, for sure. Um, I was very proud of my Norm. I wrote for Norm MacDonald, all his Larry Kings, which you might remember, mm -hmm. where I portrayed Larry as just being this completely senile, ass-kissing <laughs> sort of public relations guy who just wanted to please Hollywood. So we did like four or five of those Larry Kings where it was just Norm staring at the camera, sharing Larry King's innermost thoughts. <laughs> so I love doing those. I was very proud of a sketch I wrote that now has a cult following uh, where I had Stevie Nicks running her own fajita restaurant. <laughs> it was called Stevie Nicks Fajita Roundup. And over the years, that's gotten quite a following. And then I'm proud of the fact that I wrote Chris Farley's last ever appearance on Saturday Night Live when he hosted. I wrote oh, wow. El Nino, oh. where he played the weather front, El Nino. Yes. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Um, now, so did you... Um, so that was when he came back to host. Had you worked? Did you overlap with him when he was there as a no, cast member? No, we, we didn't overlap, but I knew him and was friends with him through David Spade because obviously oh, they sure. had done movies and they were tight. So I knew Chris through David. So I had a nice relationship with him by the time he came back to host. And what was that like, what, either with him or or just with other people coming back to host? What is that... Uh, is that like a special, uh, you know, uh, uh, is this the favorite week of the year special kind of thing? Or how does how does that play out? The truth is, Peter, it depends who the person is returning. Because oh. some cast members who've gone on to, you know, fame and fortune are just thrilled to come back and play. Others, though, kind of have an axe to grind. Like oh. they're still reliving their pain and suffering of not being treated well on the show. So when they come back, it's almost like, um, uh, what do you call it? Um, PS, PS, oh, PTSD. You know, yes, exactly. Uh -huh. Post so they're a lot of reminded of a lot of unpleasant things that happened to them. So I, I had, I dealt with both situations of hosts returning to the show. Oh, wow. Wow. Okay. Um, and, and speaking of that, so, you know, SNL has, uh, you know, there are some people, um, you know, especially of the people on SNL who really made a splash, who, who were really prominent while they were on the show, some of them have then gone on to be huge, huge stars. And some of them, uh, even though they were huge on SNL, that was sort of, it seems like the high point, uh, professionally, or, or at least from, you know, from an outsider's perspective, it doesn't seem like they had quite the same, uh, you know, super success as other people. Um, did you, uh, well, I guess, and so do you agree with that, with that assertion that that, that happens? But um, is there any way to tell, uh, you know, would you have known while working with them that this person is definitely going to be a huge, huge star and this person might not? Or is, are there any indicators of that on the show? There's indicators, but I can't say that it's a science, right? 
even that is sort of prognosticating and you're not sure. For example, I wasn't on the show when Chris Rock was a cast member. He was a cast member for a few years, right? I think a lot of people felt that his stint, his time at SNL wasn't super successful, meaning he got in a few sketches, he wrote a few things. But when Chris talks about it, he really discovered and became even a better comedian once he left Saturday Night Live. And it was a few years later that he became the greatest stand-up comic working in the country. Mm -hmm. um, another example would be um, Ben Stiller barely lasted at Saturday Night Live. He didn't like it at all. He didn't get along with the powers that be. But obviously, Ben went on to do amazing things as a comedic actor. Mm -hmm. I'm not so sure you would have known that watching him on SNL. That's interesting. That's a good mm -hmm. point. Um, were there were there people that you uh, that you just particularly enjoyed working with on the show? Absolutely. Um, in my tenure there, I loved working with Daryl Hammond because mm. he's just a brilliant impressionist. So the notion that he could imitate so many celebrities, and I loved writing, making fun of celebrities. Um, I really enjoyed working with Tracy Morgan. I was one of the first writers to work with him when he arrived at the show. So I enjoyed my time with Tracy. Norm MacDonald, amazing. Um, Maya Rudolph, I only got to work with her one year, I believe, her first year, but I really felt she was a super talent. And that's someone who, going back to what you said earlier, I did feel like she, this woman has the world ahead of her, like she's gonna have huge opportunities because mm. I saw her having so many facets to her abilities. Now thinking of working with, you just mentioned Norm Macdonald and Tracy Morgan and Maya Rudolph. Now those are not people where um, you're just writing any old part and you know, any of them can fit into any of those roles. I mean, those are, those are very unique voices and, and personalities. And uh, I mean, and, I, and I'm sure gifted actors who could play a range of characters, but is there, what's the process like in terms of writing with someone or for someone as a, as opposed to, I feel like a lot of writers, they feel like they're the creator of their characters and they're in charge of their characters. What is it like working with, uh, with personalities like that? Right. So I think it's Saturday Night Live. It's not quite the same as writing a sitcom, you know, where you've created your own, characters who are going to be on the show for years and then you have a big casting session and and cast one actor to play that part Saturday Night Live is much more collaborative so that I think you have to be more collaborative with the cast in terms of not letting them write with you but talking to them about hey here's what I'm thinking of doing would that be something you would enjoy or do you have a angle on it because they will sometimes bring magic to something that you didn't even realize they could do. Mm. So I loved having discussions with cast about, you know, what their thoughts were. Uh, if I told sort of told them what the part was. Were there, were there any people who were difficult to work with or, or that you, um, and maybe, maybe you don't need to name names, but were there, were there people, I mean, you mentioned some people that you were really excited to work with and proud of working with. 
were there people that you sort of shied away from or yeah but the reason i shied away from them peter was that in my experience they often wouldn't deliver something amazing for what i wrote them meaning they might be competent but they wouldn't be like oh my god they took what i wrote and made it funnier so i would of course certain cast members i felt wow nine out of ten times I think I wrote them something funny, but they will take it and make it even better. And mm. those are the people you want to cast and work with. Absolutely. Absolutely. What and what a great opportunity to work with those people. Um, did you feel like Saturday Night Live was a great preparation for other things? Or is it so unique and different that it, it's really just its own thing? The thing it's most helpful for in preparation is Anytime you have a short window of time to write comedy that has to be performed right either in front of the camera or in front of a live audience, it's great for that because I dealt with so much pressure so many times that I knew what is that anything can be done no matter what the obstacles are. Uh, in other ways, it created an unrealistic uh, sense of you're working with such amazing talent and sometimes other projects, the comedy talent you have, they're simply not as good. Mm. So they're not going to pull off what SNL cast members could pull off. That's, uh, you know, that, and that is something where when you're working with the best, it, it's going to be, it's, it, it's probably going to always be a little difficult to move on to anybody else. I'd agree with that. Um, but so then it, it seems like you've, you ended up spending, you've spent a lot of time working on, uh, a number of other projects, but I noticed a lot of awards shows that you've written and produced. Um, what? How did you get into that coming out of SNL? The first one of the first TV jobs I ever had before Saturday Night Live was the ESPY Awards on ESPN because you know I'm a huge sports fan, particularly baseball, and Dennis Miller hosted it, and um, so I got to write sports-oriented jokes, which I loved. But I experienced what it's like an award show. You know, you have all these celebrities coming on. A lot of them aren't funny. So they <laughs> need writers to give them something funny or clever to say, even when they're presenting an award. So that was my first experience. But then Lorne Michaels got approached to executive produce the ESPY Awards because they wanted them to be hipper and funnier. So Lorne turned to me to basically produce and write the show with him. So that was a great opportunity for me to sort of put my comedic stamp on a big award show. Wow. And that is, I mean, that would be huge. That's so what is the goal? I mean, what is the realistic goal with something like that? I mean, it's, it's probably not realistic to think that, uh, this is going to be the best, you know, two hours of comedy that anyone has ever seen. So how do you approach that? What what are you going for in, in that in that kind of environment? You're going for to make an impact the at the moment the show's happening. So you want for me personally, you want the audience and the and the celebrities to go, wow, this is the funniest, most entertaining award show I've ever been a part of. Mm. That's the biggest thing you do. Unfortunately, you know, award shows don't last more than 24 hours after the fact, mm -hmm. unless someone gets assaulted on stage. <laughs> but um, 
people's memories are very quick to, and like you move on quickly from an award show. But in the height of the moment, it's great, at least from my perspective, to hear laughter and like, wow, you're really entertaining people in what is normally a very boring, super boring uh, premise of, of handing out awards. Mm -hmm. And so um, is there a balance between, I mean, it seems like you were just saying the focus is on in the moment, in the room, but is there is there a balance between playing to the room and playing to the audience at home? Yes, there is. Um, and comedy-wise, that has to do with if you pre-tape something and show it to the audience gathered in the auditorium, you also want to make sure that's going to play well to people watching it on TV, right? Because it's two different audiences. So the energy is always different if you're watching it at home versus sitting live in the audience. So you, you need to be cognizant of both audiences. Hmm. Is there, is there something that you wish audiences either you wish audiences knew when watching these award shows or, uh, that seems obvious to you, but it seems like people don't know, uh, that it, it seems like, um, you know, knowing how much work goes into making this an entertaining event. And then it seems like people often are critical and take the, you know, take any of the comedy for granted and just complain about other things. But it, are there any things that you would hope that people would understand or, or would know about this? You know, I think that, um, sadly, a lot of award shows suck <laughs> and that I don't blame the critics for being hard on them because they're really bad. So what I would tell you is that I feel like if I had the opportunity to produce and write on more award shows in the way that I think they work, I think people would be happier with the product because, for example, I do the Writers Guild Awards and they're not televised. I wish they were because I've had people who participated, meaning actors and directors and celebrities and who say this is the most entertaining award show I've ever been a part of. And that's because I figured out a balance of the right amount of gravitas and honor to have for the people nominated, but also have really clever, funny stuff interspersed throughout the show that you don't see coming and feels organic to what an award show is. Mm -hmm. So I do think it's possible. I just think that a lot of the people who are doing these shows are stuck in sort of how shows used to be instead mm -hmm. of making them, you know, a little more, I guess, relevant and contemporary. We've, we've still, we're, we're, we're baffled that young people don't want to watch a show that is still in the Bob Hope mold. Totally. Exactly. exactly. So if you, if you were going to do the Oscars, you have any, what, what would you do? I would definitely shake up the, the format of like, for me, Peter, it's deathly to have two people presenting an award. Mm. It's the worst. You, you should limit it. It's generally one person should own that stage at a time and present unless it's two people who have amazing chemistry, mm -hmm. then it's okay. But see what they're doing is they're combining people who have no chemistry. Just, Oh, she's this talented actress from this movie. And here's a guy from this show, but there's no relationship there. So what they're saying is just, you know, contrived. 
their attempts at humor don't seem to be real. So that's the first thing I would do. Change that. Mm-hmm. I also think the um, the order in which they present the awards, they're sort of stuck in. And I think there's ways you have to sort of ebb and flow so that you hand out some big awards up top, then a few that are less interesting, but then you come back to one that's really interesting. But I think that the 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 way they pick which awards go when is not a good choice. Mm. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. What well, I mean, and especially what you're saying about the two people, that is, I mean, unless it's it's either, you know, the once or twice it's the highlight of the show when right. it's uh, you know, Tina Fey and Amy Poehler or, or or you know some some team, right? But it's almost always this dead space while they wait for the other person to talk and they don't get along and exactly. I would just, I'd argue, I'd make the argument to the Academy that less is more like, yeah, you're not going to have as many stars if you're eliminating two presenters in to down to one, but the stars you are going to have on when they're on stage, they're really going to score and be funny and interesting. And that makes the show better. Right, these are ostensibly people who can perform. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's why they're up there. Like you said, the word ostensibly, and and I would look for the for the writers go to awards. I'll turn down some pretty big stars simply because I don't think they can handle the comedy of what we want them to do. Meaning, mm. do a funny line, and I've seen it happen on our show when I was like, uh oh, I don't think this person can do it, and then they weren't that good. <laughs> so it always makes me go, ugh. If only we had had, you know, a funnier person. And at this point in the interview, Hugh went on to talk about some of his experiences. Uh, let's see. I think he was fighting a dragon. He uh, did a quest at some point. I, uh, Hugh is a man of many accomplishments, and we should all be more like him. But for right now, unfortunately, this is the end of our interview with Hugh Fink. Please look him up at HughFink.com. He's a, an amazingly accomplished writer awards show producer, and someone who definitely could fix the Oscars if he just got the chance. And that brings our episode to an end. Thank you for joining us. You can find out more links and information on the show notes. So thank you, and come back next time where we'll be talking to more filmmakers that you might not have heard of, but should definitely pay attention to. I'm Peter Kimball. Thank you.